Hi everyone. Welcome to the Live Longer World podcast. I am your host Aastha Jain. On this podcast, I have conversations with scientists and entrepreneurs that are transforming the field of longevity science. If you wish to stay notified of upcoming podcast releases and sign up for my newsletter, head over to livelongerworld.com. My guest today is Dr. David Jems who runs the C Elegance Aging Lab at University College London. We had a fascinating discussion talking about emerging paradigms in the theories of aging. We discussed the hyperfunction theory or the programmatic theory of aging which gives a better integrated understanding of the different theories of aging that have been presented so far such as damage accumulation, evolutionary theory of aging and antagonistic pleiotropy. It's been assumed that molecular damage is always the cause of aging, but the programmatic theory of aging shows that that might not be the case. We also discussed David's critique of the hallmarks of aging and how there should be a better paradigm for the aging field. Lastly, we discussed how research from his lab on C elegans might explain some of the conflict around whether sirtuins affect lifespan and how C elegans also show versions of this programmatic theory of aging. which can give us a better understanding of how to study aging going forward. Just a quick note, there is a point in the discussion where David pulls up some slides to better explain the programmatic theory of aging. So if you are listening to the audio only version, you might want to refer to the YouTube version or the show notes. With that, I hope you enjoy my discussion with Dr. David Jams. Hi David and welcome to the Live Longer World podcast. So great to have you here today. Great to be here. <laughs> Thanks for your time. So, I want to start by talking about uh one of your recent reviews which is the hyperfunction theory of aging, uh an emerging paradigm in the biology of aging. And I think it's a really interesting review uh because you talk about some of the different theories of aging like evolutionary theory, antagonistic pleiotropy, um you also talk about the programmatic theory and then you say that you know we need one integrated understanding of the theory of aging and maybe this hyperfunction theory or the quasi program theory is one such theory um uh, so maybe if you can discuss um briefly what some of the other theories of aging are that have been presented before and what is this emerging paradigm which you which has been called the hyperfunction theory i mean i suppose that um you know most fields of uh, of science that are are at a state of relative maturity like something like say chemistry um they have a kind of foundational ideas which unite the field and and about which there's very little argument um and which really in a way are what makes the field so powerful so for example in chemistry you've got something like the periodic table uh and the uh you know understanding of the chemical bond and and atomic structure and so on um and uh, all chemists agree about that that your chemists don't argue about whether the you know periodic table is real or not um and and the thing about these kinds of um kind of foundations is that they really guide they 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 guide the research fruitfully and usefully so they they uh, uh they produce um predictions and hypotheses that that have a good chance of being right um and the thing about the aging field is that in a way um that it, that sort of uh that sort of paradigm that kind of general paradigm that fa- those foundational ideas don't really exist for aging not not in a in a 
in a in, in the same way as in more mature fields um so the um the uh, article about the the hyperfunction theory i mean it's looking at, 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 at actually several new theories which um i'm not arguing that these are you know these are necessarily absolutely right but that they look like you know that i guess it's arguing that there should be such an understanding because there's only one nature there's only one reality so why shouldn't it be possible to understand aging in a general way um and i think that uh, i think that having worked in the field for many decades uh these new ideas they they seem very uh, they present clearer sort of uh, understanding of aging certainly than i've ever uh, had before so i, I think um one could characterize the kind of aging field at the moment as, as like a collection of different theories and ideas which are not really integrated in any major way um but i think in the past um i think during especially during the 90s there was a collection of ideas about aging that seemed to kind of gel together in a fairly coherent way um and uh, that included for example evolutionary theory of aging which i think remains you know valid and undoubtedly correct um which is sort of about the why of aging why aging evolves why it's there um but then the, the sort of the more difficult aspect of aging is really what are the mechanisms the actual you know what actually happens during aging that causes uh, aging related disease and causes death and uh um, during the 90s particularly i think there was a consensus that emerged in the field that um the aging is um, is very much a process of um, kind of um, stochastic breakdown. So rather like rather in a similar way to um, you know complex machinery or, or buildings and so on, that, that inevitably things wear out and break down over time. Um, and I think probably influenced by the, uh, um, the the sort of fashion for explanations at the molecular level. That very much that very much led to an interest in the idea of molecular damage accumulation. So, for example, DNA damage, damage to protein and damage to, to lipids and so on. Um, and uh, ideas about the importance of metabolism in aging, which kind of go way back to the rate of living theory, back from the 19, uh, 1930s. Um, led to a kind of convergence on the idea of, 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 uh, of metabolism and, and oxidation as a as a sort of driver of aging uh, and certainly when i came into the field um my impression from the field was that it had been established at that point it was now beyond any shadow of a doubt that the main cause of aging was actually um, oxidation was, was oxidative damage particularly uh, from reactive oxygen species such as uh, superoxide uh, free radical produced as a byproduct of, of, of mitochondrial metabolism so um i think that um uh you a number of ideas kind of got linked together in a very uh, in a rather elegant way that looked like a very much like a, a sort of periodic table for the for, for aging so you had for example the idea of, of metabolism generating uh oxygen damage you know reactive oxygen and damage accumulating and you had the idea of the disposable soma which was a, a beautiful and elegant uh, a, a kind of connection between the evolutionary theory and the idea of damage accumulation uh, and th the reasoning was that um that uh, um 
that uh, uh, the, the processes of maintenance that protect against damage are quite resource uh, costly. And in the wild, you know, organisms, they have, they don't have all the resources, you know, unlimited resources, and they have, they may have to sort of decide how to invest the limited resources they've got to optimize fitness. And actually, it doesn't make sense to invest uh, so well into maintenance that you actually don't age. You're actually better off kind of uh, maintaining yourself just well enough to be able to reproduce. And that way you can, uh, you can actually divert uh, resources into reproduction and that way you out reproduce other organisms in your, in your species. And, and so, so it favors the evolution of a, of a disposable, right? Short-lived uh, soma, rather like, I think, disposable uh, uh, consumer products sometimes, you know, produced, they're not, they're produced to be, you know, they're made to be able to produce in large numbers rather than to last, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so this was a beautiful connection of the, of the evolutionary theory and the mechanistic theory. Um, and then there was the dietary restriction, the, the allocation theory, which was an idea that, that you could understand dietary restriction because what dietary restriction did was to shift resources away from uh, uh, reproduction and into maintenance. So it all kind of linked together very elegantly. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, I'm very influenced by experimental work. And I mean, my lab, we've been working with Cielagans trying to test different theories of aging. Um, and one of the things that we did was really to try to test the oxidative damage theory um, in C. elegans, um, which in the early noughties was still very much sort of the, the, the mainstream. And it was actually kind of almost a rather an eccentric thing to suggest that there might be a problem with that theory in the early. <laughs> but the results that, that we were getting for C. elegans were really just repeatedly not supporting the theory. We, we did a whole series of very... <laughs> sort of tedious papers where we would test the theory and then the theory wasn't supported. So we'd say, well, it doesn't support the theory. And there was always, well, yeah, but maybe you've, you haven't covered, there's always this possibility. So you could never, you could never completely disprove this theory. Whatever you did, it didn't, the data generally didn't fit, but you couldn't disprove it. So I, I think um, certainly by about, 2008, 2009, there was kind of a shift in the field. It was really quite sudden, where before that, at, at aging meetings, there were lots of talks about oxygen damage. And then after that, very few, uh, certainly in, uh, in the English-speaking world. Um, so there was a sort of, a, I guess, what you call a watershed in the field, where, in, in a sense, the sort of the, the grip in, of, of belief in that, that theory kind of suddenly dissipated. Um, but that kind of left, I think, a question about really the whole idea of damage as a cause of aging, what what I would call a, what I call sometimes the damage maintenance paradigm, which is in a way the, the 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 kind of the closest thing to a unifying paradigm for people studying mechanistic biogerontology. So I think, in a way, what's interesting about these new the programmatic theories is that they, uh, unlike the uh, oxidative damage theory or disposable soma. Um, these theories are, are much more grounded in experimental work over the last 20 years. Whereas, I mean, the, you know, the Ross theory came out of just a kind of armchair speculations from Dunham Harmon and, 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 the, and the disposable somas similarly. It was just a kind of a, you know, piece of uh, uh, conjecture, really. It wasn't something that kind of arose in, in a way to try to explain a lot of, a lot of existing evidence. 
So I think in a way that the, this the emerging theory that um, including the programmatic theory, which I think is really just part of the bigger picture, um, it, in a way makes much better sense of a lot of the findings over the last 20 years from, from biogeontology. Yeah, no, that's super interesting that you explain the history. It's like, it, yeah, the, the just the way science progresses. Um, and you've also spoken about some of some of this in your critique of the hallmarks of aging, how it's just assumed that all of aging is a direct or indirect cause of uh, molecular damage, with my, which might not be the case. And we can talk about that later, but uh, maybe if you can explain what is this hyperfunction theory or the programmatic theory? So, I mean, I, I would first of all say very, that, that I think the programmatic theory doesn't, um, it's got different names. I mean, it's uh, Blagosconi, Misha Blagosconi is one of the people that kind of has um, uh, developed the theory. I think one of the originators of the theory. Um, and I kind of started calling it hyperfunction theory. So he, he now does. But then there's, there were, at the same time, uh, Jean-Pedro de Magalhães uh, proposed a very similar theory, which has been called the developmental theory, which is, as I say there, I think really in many ways the same theory. Um, and I call it the programmatic theory for different reasons. I, th I think it's a little bit more precise. Um, so, um, yeah, how, how to explain the theory? So, um, uh, one of the things that came out from the genetics of aging, so this is looking at mutations that cause increases in lifespan, um, was the finding that pathways that are involved with growth are very important for aging. So, for example, in DAF2, the insulin IGF signaling pathway, if you knock it down, you can double, triple, quadruple the lifespan of, of C. elegans. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, one of the things that we did here at UCL early on was to test the, uh, um, what happens if you knock the pathway down the fruit flies and you see increases in lifespan. So and uh, um, similar work in mice, um, particularly actually work from Andrew Bartke in, in, in the States, um, showed that knockdown of this pathway is also extending lifespan. So it seems to be a universal effect on aging of this pathway, which is involved in growth. So this was a big puzzle around 2000. You know, you have this growth pathway, which is having effects on aging. Um, and um, one of the things that was confusing at the beginning was the fact that um, it seemed like you could separate the effects of the pathway on body size from the effects on lifespan. So that led to the idea that, that the effects on growth were probably nothing to do with the effects on aging. Mm. And also the other assumption was, well, we have to somehow understand how this pathway is affecting damage and maintenance, because that's what aging is. Aging is damage and maintenance. So it must be somehow affecting damage and maintenance. And in fact, the pathways do have some effects on damage and maintenance. Um, so part of the growth control pathway, for example, the target of rapamycin pathway regulates levels of autophagy. Um, and certainly in, for example, in, in, uh, in C. elegans, if you, if you, the long-lived mutants, they're quite resistant to oxidative stress and, and, and thermal injury and so on. So it seemed to fit that actually the pathway was acting on aging through effects on somatic maintenance. Um, but tr attempts to test the damage maintenance theory were coming up negative. So it was really confusing. Um, so, um, what, uh, um, uh, that Blagosconi and, and, and de Magalhães argued was that somehow um, it was growth that was driving aging. 
So somehow uh, you had it wasn't damage and maintenance. This was something that both of them sort of in a way conjectured. They said, look, the damage maintenance theory seems inadequate. And that's an important sort of it's like a let, let's put the damage maintenance theory for just for now. Let's put mm -hmm. it to one side and let's look at whether it's a growth effect. So how could that work? Um, and um, one of the problems was was the fact that um, the, the implication was that there's some sort of developmental type program for aging. Um, and this immediately kind of flashed a red light to people in the aging field, especially those familiar with the evolutionary theory, because it suggested the idea that you're saying that aging is programmed. And one of the kind of axioms of the evolutionary theory is that aging is not programmed. Aging is not an, an adaptation of any kind. It's like a byproduct of um, the way that natural selection works, favoring traits in early life. Yeah. Um, but then um, what, uh, what Blagosclony point, pointed out, is something I, I was very conscious of this as well, that the, the word program is, com is, is, is complex. It's problematic. Because like the word aging, it has multiple meanings, right? So programmed can mean programmed in the adaptive sense. So it means that it's a program for something. So to say that there's a developmental sort of program for aging would imply that aging is adaptive, but that's wrong. So it can't be programmed. But then program can also mean programmed in the mechanistic sense, right? So there are mechanistic processes involved. So for example, I don't know, in Cancer, for example, cancer cells, they're undergoing the cell cycle. So that, 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 that's the cell cycle program which is being enacted. But cancer is not, not an adaptation. So, it's, so, so you've got, um, you've got a, a, something that's mechanistically programmed, but not kind of programmed in the sense of an, being an adaptation. So uh, what Misha said was, I mean, Blagostani said, well, okay, it's programmed, it's not programmed, it's, it's uh, quasi-programmed or quasi-programmed, I think, if, if, if you're in America. Right. So it's sort of so it's so then that that produces a, a, a new word, which is the quasi program. And so what what Blagoswani was arguing is, was that actually what you get in late life is um, essentially quasi programs where where um, uh, programs that have evolved uh, function in early life. Uh, they run on uh, in later life in a way that is essentially futile. So you get a, an adaptive program runs on to become a, 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 a pathogenic quasar program. Um, and in fact, actually, the, the, uh, this, this kind of picture is very similar to something that George Williams said back in uh, 19, uh, whenever it was, 57. George Williams put forward the idea of antagonistic pleiotropy, which is really the, I think, the, the, um, the most plausible version of the evolutionary theory of aging where genes essentially are, are, are having beneficial effects in early life and detrimental effects later. And uh, I mean, the big problem and the big challenge, I think, um, has been to understand how that actually happens in terms of mechanisms, right? I think if you solve that, you probably, in a sense, you've really got to the bottom of things, you know, with, with aging, because aging is largely genetically determined. Um, so uh, actually what Williams said, Williams had this, um, one example that he gave, he didn't think a lot about proximate mechanisms of aging, you know. Um, and, and he imagined, uh, this is kind of fantasy, really. Uh, imagine a gene which is involved in deposition of calcium. Um, and so this gene, you've got a new variant of the gene, 
which increases calcium deposition into bone. And so what that does, it speeds up um, bone growth. And if you imagine something like a, a sort of a gazelle, you know, in, in Africa, um, and so the bones grow faster. And then when the cheetah comes, it can run faster, it can escape, so it increases fitness. But the same gene, this calcium deposition gene, is actually, um, in later life, is causing calcium to go into, uh, into vascular tissue. It's causing vascular calcification. It's promoting uh, arteriosclerosis and, and disease. So um, here, this is actually very much very similar to what Blagosloni is saying, uh, because what you have is a function which then becomes essentially, uh, it, it, it runs on and becomes uh, pathogenic. So you have a program for bone growth becomes a quasi-program for uh, arteriosclerosis. The difference is that um, in Blagosloni's uh, 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 scenario, you're looking at entire developmental programs rather than individual biochemical functions. Um, and that will it kind of it provides a, a really elegant explanation for why these growth uh, uh, control pathways like insulin, the insulin IGF signaling pathway in mammals, that's particularly IGF-1 signaling and things like the targeted rapamycin, which is a, fundamental to cell growth, why they're controlling so many uh, different diseases because they're involved fundamentally in development. All development requires right? It requires uh, TOR for, for cell growth. But then in later life, these, the TOR is involved in the development of, uh, of senescent pathology. So what's happening in the long-lived mutants is that you're dampening down the growth pathways, you're dampening the development, you're delaying the development of these quasi-programs, or you're, you're blocking the quasi-programs, you're, you're delaying the development of senescent pathologies. Um, and in that, that's how you're seeing the effects on lifespan. That's so fascinating. It's a beautiful, yeah. it's a beautiful uh, theory. And this is why I use the word programmatic, because what it's uh, the, the point about programmatic is that um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the calling it developmental theory is a little bit confusing because it implies that it's, it's actually um, ontogenesis somehow, which is causing aging. But actually, a lot of the changes we're talking about here are um, they are sort of developmental changes, but they're in things like tissue remodeling, tissue homeostasis, reproduction, immunity, and all of these things, complex programs involving cellular change, complex changes in gene expression, and so on, right? So they're not really developmental in the, in the sense of ontogenesis, but they are programmatic, right? They're, they're, and programmatic also points to the ambiguity in the word program. So it's like, it's not programmed aging, it's programmatic, right? So that's acknowledging this issue. So and in this uh, scenario, damage isn't really playing much of a role at all. This is actually your wild type genes are driving the development of pathology. Uh, and actually what, uh, what Misha argues um, is that, um, is, is that uh, uh, the, the damage that you observe, you see molecular damage accumulating in late life. It's a consequence of the pathologies that are developing. It's not the cause, hmm. right? Um, so uh, it's a correlation, if you like. Um, as, as he himself said, uh, um, during my studies of aging, I have um, I've accumulated a lot of knowledge of the, uh, of the Ross theory. Um, does this mean that, that this causes my aging? <laughs> 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 <Not>. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, um, so that's the sort of the, that's the gist of, of the programmatic theory. So it's really, in many ways, it's kind of a um, an alternative to the uh, disposable soma theory. Because the disposable soma theory, what's so great about disposable soma theory? It's like a model for an ultimate proximate theory. Um, and I guess when I came across disposable soma, I was very excited, and I thought that is what an explanation of aging looks like. You know, it's an ultimate proximate explanation. But I think it's probably just not correct, unfortunately, because because it's based on the damage maintenance paradigm, which isn't correct. Uh, it's not that damage maintenance doesn't play any role; it probably does. And I, I can't emphasize enough that the, the programmatic theory, and Blagascani emphasized this particularly. It's not the whole of aging. It's really like a, a it's like a major part of aging, but it, in itself, it's not sufficient to, mm -hmm. to explain aging. Interesting. Um, you actually, in fact, also show this in uh, through C. elegans research, and you have a preprint that shows that reproductive death in C. elegans it was viewed as distinct from aging, but it might in fact be exaggerated versions of this programmatic theory. And then there's another one that says that C. elegans eat up their own intestines, uh, which also might be a version of this wild-type uh, biological gene runoff. Uh, so maybe if you can explain some of those papers, because I think there would be good examples to really explain what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. What's so funny about it, you know, that honestly, I can't, I can't emphasize enough that, um, you know, these um, kind of emerging understanding that, that I, mean, I think I, I feel like uh, it sounds a bit crazy, perhaps, uh, but but I feel like I, mean, I feel like I understand aging far far better. Uh, than I did five years ago, and and I think a lot of that has been thanks to these ideas from um, from Blagosconi and Dumagales, uh, and actually also a, a guy called Vladimir Dillman, who who actually in fact was uh, Misha Blagosconi's father, hmm. who also uh, published quite a lot on on uh, programmatic theories and and actually a wider multifactorial model, which I think is a, a, a fantastic model. Um, but but. I was led to all of this by studying C. elegans, by doing experiments on C. elegans. So it really kind of tore my mind away from damage maintenance, which I'd believed in for years, like everybody else in the field, or most people. Um, so, um, um, but the, the odd thing is, though, that C. elegans in many ways is really different to um, a typical animal in terms of the way it ages. I think, I think C. elegans is kind of weird and different in many ways, but it is sort of part of the same spectrum of, of, uh, of biology, so that you can sort of recognize in the bizarre version in C. elegans, the same rules that are, that are actually operative in higher animals. So there's a, a bunch of problems. So, so it, it really comes to, this is a bit depressing, I think, for, for, for me in a way to talk about. But the thing that the thing that got me into working on C. elegans is, was the discovery of these long-lived mutants. Um, I mean, it's a flabbergasting finding that you can get single gene mutations that can double and triple and quadruple lifespan. I mean, the implications of that are, are jaw-dropping because, you know, aging is like, think of human aging. It's so complex. Even any individual disease, oste if you look at the literature on osteoarthritis, it's incredibly complex. All these different diseases, that, and so many of them untreatable, Alzheimer's, you know, um, COPD, and so on. But in the worm, you can intervene upstream of all of it. So you can get to the aging process itself. So all the diseases of aging, whatever the worms get, 
you can actually prevent them all. It's it's mind boggling. So you you've got the possibility that you can intervene in aging in humans in some fundamental way. And you know you you know let's forget cancer research or cardiovascular disease research. You go for aging itself. That's going to be much better. I mean that's what the worm work implies, and it sounds, seems crazy. But there they are. They're living. You know, it, they're, you know, you, you, when you look at them, it's astounding to see the long-lived worms, you know, when the wild types have died of old age. Um, and it's in C. elegans, which is a sort of notoriously simple organism. It should be straightforward to understand, discover the, you know, the sort of secret of aging in worms. Um, so the new work that, that, that um, has come out is, is a bit sort of, in a way, undercuts it all in, in a slightly depressing way. So what we what the so so what we found is that um um is that if you look at the pathology of aging in C. elegans, it shows really extreme destructive changes to organs which are not typical of higher mm -hmm. animals. So the, the, the largest somatic organ in, inside the worm is, is the intestine, it's a huge organ, relatively speaking, and it shrivels away and it it's like you know, most of the volume is gone within about a week of adulthood. Um, and a number of, uh, like the gonad, uh, part of the gonad just fragments into pieces. It actually disintegrates. Uh, and then you get these huge uterine tumors. So these sort of things don't normally happen in aging, but they do happen in certain types of organisms, which are ones that undergo um, reproductive death. So this is um, what... Um, What's sometimes called semel parity uh, in in biology. So these are semel paris organisms that have a single sort of suicidal burst of reproduction. But one of the most famous examples would be the Pacific salmon. You know, they swim up river, they make this enormous effort, and then they just they spawn, and then they just drop dead. You know, mm -hmm. like within, a, within weeks of spawning. So um, what we 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 thought that you know it, it's really odd the way that the pathology it looks like. A semel paris organism but it at the same time there's no obvious benefit to it so it can't be semel paris you know that all this self-destruction seems to be quasi-programmed it seems to be futile and one of the things that happens is that the worms fill up with yolk that the whole worm is absolutely full of yolk after uh, after reproduction and what we found a while ago was that the, the worms actually can they actually convert the biomass of the intestine into yolk but the whole thing seemed pointless in terms of it didn't seem to be anything to do with fitness. But then um, a graduate student in my lab called Karina Ken discovered that actually the, the yolk is actually vented out through the worm's vulva in large quantities. And in fact, it can support larval growth. So the implication is that in, in fact, it's a form of lactation. Uh, we call it yolk milk. So the worms are basically, they, they can't reproduce anymore. So they essentially convert their biomass into a ready energy source, and then they they pump it out through their vulva to be uh, to, to to support uh, a growth of the progeny. Um, so um, one of the things in the the, the preprint that you mentioned. Um, so um, if you if you take semelparous organisms, so for example, if you take a salmon, you've got salmon that's going to die in two weeks. Okay, so if you take Pacific salmon and you you gonadectomize them, so you remove, you basically castrate them, you take away um, the gonads, so they can't, they basically don't undergo the reproductive death. You basically block reproduction 
what happens then? Instead of living for uh, a few weeks, they live two, three, four, five years because you've wow. basically you, you've got a you've, essentially you've got a suicide program uh, and you've blocked it. So of course you get a huge increase in lifespan. Lovely work from a American uh, uh, biologist in in, uh, in California it's from from many years ago, uh, Robertson. Um, so uh, we wondered if maybe that's the true of C. elegans. In fact, so one of the things we did was to just look across the literature at what happens when you, what happens if you remove a gonad or you block reproduction to like, what happens to lifespan? If you look in some of Paris organisms, you get huge increases in lifespan, like massive in some cases. Um, but in um, the other type of organisms, so-called iteroparous species, which reproduce multiple times, if you prevent reproduction in them, if, if for example, through uh, ovariectomy or, 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 or you know, gonadectomy and so on, in general, the effects are, Either there's no effect, or where there are effects, they're fairly modest. Uh, and so then, what we did, we we found, we realised that in in Cenorhabditis, you get some worms, some species that show reproductive death, and some that don't. So if you look at the pathologies, there are some that kind of melt their organs and and, and lactate and put out milk, and other ones that don't. The organs stay, look fine. So if you if you gonadectomize the the ones that melt themselves. So it, you do it, you have to actually remove the germline and you can you do it with laser microsurgery. You get big extensions in lifespan. So we looked at um, various Cenorhabditis species, Cenorhabditis uh, uh, briggsi and, and another one called Cenorhabditis tropicalis that also melts its insides and uh, does lactation. And then we looked at uh, other Cenorhabditis species um, which don't, and then we, uh, we took away their germline and we see only very, very small increases in lifespan. Mm -hmm. So what we what we suspect is that uh, is that the insulin IGF signaling pathway and the germline signaling pathway is actually essentially promoting reproductive death. So what we what these big increases in lifespan to some extent at least it's similar to castrating a Pacific salmon. So that you you won't see that it's it's a biology which is peculiar to some Paris organisms. But on the other hand, I think that, so that's the bad news. So, because it's, it's sad because it means that the, this miraculous increases in lifespan that you see in C. elegans, you're probably not going to translate that to humans, right? Because mm. they're semi-paras and we're not. I see. Because that's, you're saying that's specific to their biology. Yeah, it's specific yeah. to the semi-paras organisms. Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole other aspect of the story, which perhaps I won't go into, which is something called adaptive death, which can co-evolve with reproductive death. And probably has done in C. elegans, and probably also in Pacific salmon. That's in a paper that we published last year called uh, "Death Happy." <laughs> it's in the Proceedings of the Royal Society. But um, but the the good news is that um, is that uh, you can make a very strong case that the sorts of mechanism that are leading to death in reproductive death they are present in uh, in in itraparous species, but they're much much more modest. Right there, and they are also highly, highly programmatic. Right, so in a way, I used to say that the C. elegans is like a sort of kind of massively Blagosclonian organism. It's like highly, highly programmatic death in C. elegans. Damage, molecular damage, for example, in humans uh, clearly does play a more important role. I mean, in cancer, for example. Um, but um, but so I think the working hypothesis is that um, sort of instead of the traditional view that you have. You have semi-paras organisms, and then you've got 
iteroparous organisms completely different. And one of them is aging and the other one is sort of something totally different. Actually, the semilparous aging is, is like a greatly exaggerated version of mechanisms mm -hmm. of aging that are operative in, uh, in iteroparous species. Um, so that means that aging in salmon is actually relevant mechanistically to, to mechanisms of aging in, in higher animals. It also means actually that plant senescence, like leaf senescence, you know, these are other types of programmatic aging, that they are also relevant so to, to understanding aging in, uh, in, in, in iteroparous species. So, you know, I, I think it sort of means that the, because plant senescence people generally, they're not invited to aging meetings. You know? <laughs> I think they should be because it's, it's all part of the same spectrum of biology. So leaf senescence, you know, um, very informative. I think leaf senescence and C. elegans aging, you know, they share some things in common, this destructive biomass repurposing. So I, I worry my answers are probably a bit long-winded. Um, no, this is, this, is, this is a good explanation. Um, I was going to ask you, I mean, you said that, you know, the hyperfunction theory um, has sort of changed how you view aging and you think you better understand aging now. I'm curious, how do you think this changes the dynamic of how we view aging in humans or just study aging going forward? Well, I mean, my own view right now, and it's difficult because the field is moving so quickly. I find that, you know, I'm sure that if I look at this video in a couple of years, you know, I'll, I'll sort of <laughs> how wrong I was. Um, but um, I mean, the, the, the thing that's in the, um, the, the, the recent um, essay on, on the, uh, that I've called the hyperfunction theory, um, I think which is really in a way more significant is when you put the programmatic theory into the context of, of this earlier theory from uh, Vladimir Dillman. So Dillman, Dillman was, um, he was a, a clinician uh, and a, a biogerontologist who worked for many years um, in the USSR in, in Leningrad. I think he's probably the smartest and most original of, of, of the Russian biogerontology. He's sort of like the Russia, I, for me, I like the Russian equivalent of someone like Tuck Finch or, uh, or Alex Comfort in the UK, you know, a sort of deep thinker. So he, he, um, he came up with a theory which, to me, looks tremendous in terms of um, possibly providing sort of the equivalent of the, uh, the, pro the, the sort of periodic table in chemistry for, for aging. Um, so, uh, I mean, in the lab at the moment, I mean, we've, we've sort of shifted a bit to, to doing a little bit less work on worms to trying to use conceptual research to try to see if we can try to make sense of diseases of aging, to try to try to kind of uh, put some, uh, provide a sort of perspective on, on, the, on the various competing ideas that exist for many diseases of aging at the moment, which I think, I think a lot of the research on aging related diseases is, is just as confused as the aging field itself. It's similar that there's sort of like a, a swarm of different competing theories sometimes that don't really, they don't really connect with each other. Um, so I, I think really the, the thing that interests me, I, I think in a way, uh, the thing that got me excited in the first place was this idea that you could intervene in aging as a whole mm -hmm. and produce the most sort of extraordinary effects. And in a way, the, the discovery of, of, of uh, reproductive death and adaptive death in C. elegans is, is kind of, you know, it's, it's a bit sad, really, as far as that goes. You know, it's kind of, 
in a way it, it kind of explains away the magic and mystery for me i don't know let's see whether other people are convinced by the work you know yeah um, but on the other hand the the emerging um um you know the the, the uh, programmatic theory in a way is part of a of a of a, a multifactorial model um as part of a multifactorial model um in a way it provides a kind of in a way that the a, a big missing part of um of the understanding of aging related diseases um i mean i could talk a little bit about the uh the the dillman kind of multifactorial model if you like go for it yeah all right so should we try looking at the slides let, let, let. so here's a, a sort of a really simple version of of this uh of this multifactorial model and that, that's why i like it I, I don't like complicated theories you know this is really simple so that the, the multifactorial model of aging involves looking at um causes of disease at a very very high level of generality okay so if we think about what causes disease in a very general way and let's forget aging for now think about the diseases that mainly affect younger people let's say under the age of 40. what is disease why does disease happen um so i think one could sort of define uh, a kind of a very general paradigm about disease which is that disease happens and this is sort of from a biological perspective when you have a normal function uh, which is disrupted by something and so then you have a dysfunction a biology biological dysfunction and that leads to disease so for example things that cause uh, that disrupt normal function would include infectious pathogens like viruses like covid or like um bacterial pathogens or, or uh, protozoan uh, pathogens like malaria mm -hmm. macroscopic pathogens like helminths and so on so you've got all of that and then you've got um uh, genetic disruption so you have uh, inherited uh, uh, genetic uh, mutations or, or somatic mutations that's involved in cancer development for example um and then you have all various other things like mechanical uh injury uh, uh dietary uh, you know malnutrition toxins in the environment you know bad air smoking whatever so that all of these things are disrupting normal function okay so and that and i think that is a kind of a that's guiding the thought processes of people involved in medical research in a very fundamental way and i think the reason the reason why aging has been so difficult one of the reasons there are many reasons actually but the, but particularly because aging involves something which is different to this um how do i go to this slide right so so this is so aging in a way has two elements and this is a very very simplified version of this multifactorial model so you have disruption so aging related diseases i've got here senescent pathologies um they are famously uh, 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 multifactorial in origin so something like osteoarthritis there are multiple things that can actually contribute to osteoarthritis um, and that includes disruption of, of normal function but these types of disruption of normal function they're not the central aging process they um, and what they impact is not so much the maximum lifespan of a species um, as the average lifespan the mean lifespan so the differences between individuals 
will be affected by the level of disruptions if they, I don't know, mm-hmm. they smoke and, or they drink to excess or they, uh, they, they, they overeat or whatever, or they're, they're living in a place with very bad air or whatever. Um, but actually the main cause of aging is not disruption at all. The main cause arises f- from the wild type genotype, the wild type phenotype. What, Bla- mm-hmm. what uh, Dillman called, um, he called them normal diseases. So they're not arising from any kind of abnormality. They're arising from normal function. Um, and these are the mechanisms which are predominantly programmatic in nature. Right? They're predominantly programmatic. Uh, and there are various different sorts of programmatic mechanisms. That's too much to go into. But I've got a number of essays in the pipeline about the different forms of programmatic aging. I think, I think there are mm. parts of the puzzle coming out. And the re- so, so really... Your own wild type genotype is killing you, it's destroying you. And the reason why it does that um, is because of evolutionary biology. Um, and, you know, this is where antagonistic pleiotropy comes in. Um, essentially, our, our wild type genotype is absolutely riddled with antagonistic pleiotropy. Um, so, and that happens because of the declining force of natural selection with in- increasing age, what's mm-hmm. called the selection shadow but also i would argue and this is uh, unpublished uh, a major factor here is biological constraint and it's biological constraint which is why you can't maximize all your fitness traits at once and i think the key to understanding where uh, where diseases of aging are coming from is actually biological constraint oh, sorry what do you mean by biological constraint here well biological constraint means that um that um uh um biological processes are highly interrelated mm-hmm. in such a way uh, they're highly interconnected in such a way that it's not possible to maximize benefits all benefits at once you have to choose and therefore you have to make trade-offs i mean a very very simple example to use a very simple example if you think about something like the synthesis of atp Mm-hmm. So if you increase, and this is in, in work from bacteriology, uh, uh, interventions that increase uh, the, bacter- the, the ATP production rate actually reduce the yield and vice versa. So you can't maximize yield and, and rate at the same time. You have to basically come up with an optimal, uh, uh, right? You have to come up with a balance, a trade-off between the two. And if you have a mutation, which actually increases the ATP uh, production rate, uh, it will be it will show antagonistic pleiotropy hmm. because that mutation will also uh, cause a reduction in yield. Right. So really, um, the argument is that really it's uh, the, the biological constraint is at the heart of and of why antagonistic pleiotropy exists, and this is affecting many many different traits. Um, so according to this view here, then, in a sense, the, the programmatic aspect is what's been missed. You know, I mean, if you look at accounts of, um, of osteoarthritis, for example, which I've been looking at recently, most of them focus on disruption. They're always looking for disruption as an explanation, you know, uh, and what the disruption will never explain is why um, a human being only will get osteoarthritis when they get into their 60s and 70s. Whereas a mouse will start to get osteoarthritis after only 18 months. Mm. Right? And that's, that's linked to, to the underlying 
biology of aging, which is programmatic. Um, I don't know if I'll go to the next slide. Maybe it's too complex. Um, yeah, well, it's a bit small anyway. Uh, so this is all in the in this essay that you mentioned, the one in the, it's aging research reviews. It sets out the the, the main the whole uh, um, programmatic the, the multifactorial theory, which is a it, it's a sort of amalgamation of Dillman's thinking, which in many ways prefigured the programmatic theory, but it's not wasn't as well put informed because we know so much more information now. Um, about the pathways controlling aging and, and, and the links to growth and so on. Um, mm -hmm. But you can, you can essentially, uh, you can uh, kind of update Dillman's theory in the light of the, of the programmatic theory. That's sort of the programmatic mechanism. So those are the folks that really, where the programmatic theory comes from, from Williams really originally, and then from Michel and Jean-Pedro more recently. Yeah, no, I, I actually think this slide where it's laid out so simply that uh, you know, disease is just disruption of normal function, but then you have aging, which is not just caused by disruption of normal function. It's this uh, program programmatic theory that you just spoke about, uh, also linked with antagonistic pleiotropy and biological constraint. And I, I think when you just look at this, that look at it in terms of these two boxes, it, it makes a lot more sense, um, just all, all that you explained right now. I'm glad, and I find it's very weird. I find that, I mean, I've been looking a lot at osteoarthritis and, and it's um, having this framework. Um, it doesn't sort of provide all the answers, but in a strange way, it, it puts everything into perspective. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you sort of know where you are. You know where to put all the different different findings. You can put them into a, into a similar scheme, you know, and work out. It kind of also focuses attention at what the major questions are, which I think, Prostrearthritis would be how constraint is leading to the age changes in chondrocyte function, which leads to these morphogenetic developmental changes in in uh, in joints, which are the, really the major disease of osteoarthritis. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's nice to have better explanations, um, and I'll be on the lookout for some of your other papers that defines or talks about the different types of programmatic theory that you mentioned. Uh, but maybe I'll jump to another paper and I can remove this. Yeah. I'll jump to another paper where you talk about uh, the FLN2 mutation, if that's how I pronounce it, that affects lifespan in C. elegans. And I thought this was really interesting because you show that, you know, there's all this confounding research on whether sirtuin overexpression oh, affects yeah. lifespan or not. Yeah. Uh, some labs have been able to reproduce it, some others haven't. And now you show this new research that says that, well, it actually might be a mutation in a certain type of C. elegans that's um, affecting lifespan and, it, and it's been falsely attributed to sirtuins. Um, so yeah, maybe if you could just explain what you found out, what this mutation is and whether yeah. and how sirtuins play a role there. I mean, I think that in a way, this uh, that most of the Flynn two story is like it's, it's totally of, of 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 no interest to anyone except worm people because it's really a um, you know it, it's it, this is to do with model organisms and the fact that um, one of the sort of things that um, is so nice about C. elegans is that um, all the labs are using the same wild type and we're all supposedly. We, we we try to use the same culture conditions. It's more or less the same. There are mm -hmm. certain things you can't control. And what uh, 
what the paper showed was that actually um, there are two different CLGAN stocks that are being distributed, and one of them just has a mutation in it, uh, which uh, affects it. It alters um, the it alters the way that the CLGANs die uh, in a quite subtle way. But when you if you look at a number of publications in the past, you could see how they the results had been confused and confounded. By the presence of this mutation, so it's really just a sort of very uh, technical paper for worm people to say, you know, you need to always make sure that you don't have this Flynn two mutation. But the skin, the skin, uh, sorry, the um, the sirtuins thing is is in a way of wider interest. So, um, and I, I, there's a sort of interesting kind of philosophical, not not philosophical, but. There, there are questions about how you use model organisms, I think, which, which are really interesting here. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, it's a bit hard to explain. Let me, let, me, let me remember how the whole story went. Um, so what happened was that, um, was that it was reported that if you overexpress sirtuins, um, you get an increase in lifespan. Um, in C. elegans. It was a, one of the sirtuin variants called SIR, SIR 2.1. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so what we found was that, um, that if we backcrossed the strain that was distributed by the Syndrome of Genetics Center with, you know, the long-lived strain. So, well, we got the long-lived strain, we tested it, it was long-lived. But when we backcrossed it, the longevity went away. So we said, ah, it's not actually the long, it's not the SIR 2 that's causing the longevity, it's something else. And we, we, we identified a second site mutation uh, in the background. Um, and then the original lab that did the work, they went and they checked and they said, yes, there is a second site mutation. Um, but then the outcross strain, when we looked at it, it wasn't long lived, but they said, ah, our outcross strain is a bit long lived. It's not as long lived as before, but there is a significant increase. Um, and that paper came out at the same time as our paper. And I just thought, oh, 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 you know, what is going on? Are they making it up? I don't think so. And I, I spoke to the author of the paper and I thought, there's no way that this guy made this up. I, I would never, I would not believe that. So in the end, I, it was just a mystery. So then it turned out that we had done the outcrossing with the strain with the Flynn 2 mutation in it. So, uh, um, when we found the Flynn 2 mutation, uh, the, the, the very excellent postdoc, Yuan Zhao, who did that, did that work, she said, oh, I'd like to look at the SIR2 strains and see if it had any effect there. And I said, oh, no, not that again. But she, I said, so she, I said, all right, we should do it. You're right, we should test it. So she tested it. And what she found, um, she, she had the strain with the Flynn 2 and, the, and without the Flynn 2. And there was the, the SIR2 in overexpression still didn't increase lifespan. Mm. So, um, so we thought, okay, good, it's not Flynn2. But then Yuan being very rigorous uh, uh, cast of mind, she said, yes, but they used FUDR in their study. So, but, and we didn't. So we should retest our two outcross strains with FUDR. So FUDR, this is um, short for a fluoridoxyuridine or floxuridine. So people use it when they're doing lifespan experiments. They put it on the plates. Um, and what it does is that it, it, um, 
uh, it prevents the eggs from hatching. It basically blocks DNA replication. Um, and more recently, a lot of labs avoid using FEDR because it's been found to cause artifacts. Mm. So uh, what Yuan found was that when she used FUDR with the uh, the non-FLIN2 strain, that the SIR2 the overexpression did increase lifespan a little bit. Um, and the way that it did it was by reducing um, the infection in the pharynx, which affects about 40% of the, of the, uh, of the C. elegans worms. And this is something that Yuan showed before that there's two different kinds of death mm -hmm. so for example if if you then do the same experiment if you look uh in the presence of carbonacillin which prevents all infection then the sirtuin overexpression doesn't increase lifespan so what that showed and, and, and she was able to show that that um uh that there was a um there was an if there was an effect on the invasion of the bacteria into the pharynx where we, she could show that, that, that this was happening. When you combined sirtuin overexpression with FUDR, you had to have FUDR to see it. So, um, so we could reproduce the results from, not from the original uh, uh, Nature paper, uh, but the, the, um, the paper that was published that was Vanathan and, uh, and Grunty. We were able to reproduce it. So how do you interpret that exactly? Uh, I mean, we were very happy because I, I was always left with a bad conscience. It never, things never made sense. And now it made sense. Um, so one argument, we argued about this. One argument which people made was, well, the, um, the effects of, of Sirtuo overexpression is an artifact of the use of FUDR, you know, and therefore the information is not informative. But I don't agree with that. Because I think really the question is, you know, if uh, whatever the uh, uh, whatever the sirtuin is doing, the overexpression is doing, you know, if that that mechanism could, the, the FEDR could be revealing a mechanism which is relevant to aging in, in in other places, and that's really what matters. It's it's in a way, it's not about culturing everything correctly. It's whether the mechanism that you see is is relevant. So uh, what the mechanism involved was a was not it wasn't uh, some sort of overall effect on aging. It was purely an effect preventing infection of the pharynx, right? It wasn't a sort of general aging effect, which would kind of perhaps argue for a, a sort of a, 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 a non-general effect. You know? um, but we were quite happy that, that it made sense. Um, on the other hand, actually, the one of the, a nature editor came back and, 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 and rather strenuously said we should sort of do some sort of retraction. Um, and um, initially, I, I agreed, but then my co-authors they just said, "Oh, for God's sake!" You know, um, I think there was a sense that it, 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 after all this time, it was, you know, especially given the nature of the results, you know, uh, the FUDR dependence and the fact that it's it's just a sort of bacterial resistance effect. But yeah, it's a sort of interesting um, kind of um, final note, and at least at least the, it's possible to get things to make sense, you know, to resolve these things. And the, I mean, the, the problem with Flynn too was affecting the whole field. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. uh, you know, in in, in our defence. 
Yeah, no, definitely highlights an important problem, right? Of using, are you, are we actually using the same model organisms with the same sort of genotype and mutations and whatnot? Um, so I'm curious, what does this mean for sirtuin research in humans? Do you think it's still exciting and promising or is it not really? If no, really. I, mean, I haven't stayed close to it. Um, the, the, the involvement with sirtuins for me was very much, um, uh, because of projects that we were working on in, in the past where we were trying to understand uh, the mechanisms of uh, dietary restriction. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of uh, came to the conclusion, I published this a long time ago, that the um, dietary restriction models in C. elegans are so hopelessly problematic that I, I, I felt I couldn't really work on them. There were too many, too many problems, um, and I don't want to go into that. But my, my partner in the in this uh, research consortium, which was Linda Partridge, she was kind of working more concertedly. The, the fruit fly is a, a much better model for studying Dutch restriction, I mean. And, and they were getting very fruitful. You know, they were getting lots of fantastic results. Um, but the question was, you know, maybe the answer had already been found, which was that, you know, sirtuins so, so essentially explain the effects of dietary restriction. Um, but the, um, during the noughties, there was a whole series of problems with reproducibility of results, where results that were coming from uh, a small group of labs uh, who were incidentally linked to uh, a company, uh, which were, where there were financial interests, um, were producing results that, that just everything was showing that the sirtuins were were mediating the effects of dietary restriction on lifespan. Um, so really, in a way, my, my particular interest was on that. Um, and I think that certainly a lot of that work um, turned out to be, there was, it was, it was, I have to be frank, it seemed to me like a nuisance within the field, the way that it was there were just a continuous production of things that were difficult to reproduce. And the impression that one gained was rather, unsavory that there was something unsavory happening there um uh, perhaps uh, the possibility of conflict of interest you know came to my mind and i think to many people about it there's, there's a lot of discussion there were articles you know in in, the, in science in nature about problems with search mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand i mean the discovery of search originally you know the role in in uh, their role in yeast aging i mean it, it led consequently to fantastic uh, rich biology um and i mean the sirtuins are highly highly pleiotropic involved in general ways in gene regulation and so on and, i mean it's a, it's a large field of interest it's just a pity that there was this period where there just seemed to be you know a veil of tears of things not being reproducible endless quarrels and scandals and i mean it was terrible it's a terrible area one of my postdocs went in, 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 when I couldn't go to a conference in Cold Spring Harbor. You know, uh, I can't remember why. I mean, I'd given talks about the problems with the work. He went there and he 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 said he felt came back. He felt like he'd been beaten up because he was presenting results that were not consistent with the sort of you know the the, the uh, sort of accepted view of their of their importance. So it was it was quite nasty the whole area.
Wow. Yeah. I, I was talking to Matt Kibbelin, who said he was also involved in the discovery of search humans, but, but he said that, you know, when so many labs showed that you can actually reproduce the results, he became less in favor of them, that yeah. perhaps it's not actually that interesting and we should be honest about that. I mean, I, in my defense, in terms of the Flynn 2 work, I mean, at least I corrected the work. I, I went and corrected it as best I could. Um, and that certainly was very much not the pattern with, with the Saturian work in the noughties. And as I say, I haven't really followed it very much since then. I sort of run a mile from, from, the, from this topic, really. <laughs> okay, so uh, another... Work in areas where there, are, where there are good, useful findings and reproducible findings, you know? You, yeah. Right, where, where you get certain areas, they get fouled up with, with bad work and, and it, it, it essentially tangles the work up. You know. Right. Oh, 100%. Um, so another old paper of yours, which talks about how metformin alters the gut microbiome and also methionine metabolism. Uh, but it sounds like it depended on the E. coli strain and whether what the sensitivity to metformin or glucose concentration was. Um, I'm curious, like, how is, what did your work show in terms of how is metformin affecting the gut microbiome? And as a second part to the question, I think there was a recent study that came out that showed that metformin didn't really have beneficial effects. Um, I don't know if you followed that and if you have any thoughts on that. What paper is that? I honestly, to be honest, that the, the work um, on the microbiome, I, I had a period when I was kind of interested in the microbiome. Um, and then after the, um, the metformin paper, that work was kind of in a way taken away from the lab from, from I mean a lot of that work the, a lot of the beautiful aspects of that work are, are, are not from me they're from Felipe Cabrera um, uh, who really took that work and it's done done beautiful work since and I mean I think that the thing that you know one of the things that I thought was really interesting about that work was uh, was the way that um, it, it, it raised the question of how um, how host, drug, and microbiome interact, and how actually a critical part of understanding uh, drug function is how it's biotransformed by the microbiome, you know, and how the drug also affects the microbiome. So it's a, a it's a it's mm -hmm. a complex system, and and actually, <coughs> you know, C. elegans, the the system where you have C. elegans and then you have E. coli. Uh, and then you have a drug is a fantastic system a, a, a reductionist system where you can simplify uh, 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 um, you, you have something that is manageable to study where you know the real microbiome that you know like in, in mammals is incredibly complex but in you know in C. elegans you have a single bacterial species and then you can alter the uh, 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 the genotype of the bacteria in order to be able to understand interactions between drug bacterium and host uh, and there was a beautiful study that uh, that, that Felipe did uh, after he set his own lab up looking at um, floxiridine which is used as a uh, uh, as a treatment for uh, for colon cancer you know mm -hmm. so you could really you could really see how interactions between the bacteria and the drug were uh, were relevant to uh, um, understanding how it how it uh, works in in the uh, in preventing colon cancer. So I think it's a very, very useful model. I see, okay, interesting. Um, 
lastly, I think we discussed a little bit already on your critique of the hallmarks of aging. Um, and one point that came up again and again was that, you know, so far aging has just been viewed as molecular damage. Uh, but of course, we spoke at length about the programmatic theory of aging. But this, the an, another point you make in that paper, um, a review is that, uh, you know, we stay away from the, the hallmarks of aging are biased away from things like immunosenescence or um, some of the other markers that are closer to the medical field. Maybe you can touch upon that point a little bit more. Yeah. So uh, the, um, I mean, first, you know, let me say that um, when I originally read the hallmarks of aging nursing first came out, I, 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 my, my initial sense was, you know, oh, this is really useful, you know, very useful because that, that the aging field gets so dispersed that it gets so big that you rarely get things that are really kind of in a way covering the whole field. Mm -hmm. uh, and it did it really well. It, it managed to, you know, it managed to cover in a way that was unusual, a very wide range of different topics. Um, but then it's sort of towards the end, it goes into this hallmarks. The whole hallmarks thing itself is a little bit strange. It was strange to me. So I had very mixed feelings about it. But I thought, well, you know, the, the hallmarks, I just never mind that. It's a useful review. But then the, the, to my surprise, you know, the more I'd go to, over the years, I'd go to meetings, more and more people would show this hallmarks diagram and they would sort of refer to it as if it was sort of some sort of central paradigm, as if the hallmarks thing really meant something. And it, it doesn't really. It's sort of, it, it's, it's kind of odd. Um, and I, I it, it's... I, I started wondering about why, um, you know, that why has the hallmarks be become uh, so prominent in the way that it has? Um, and uh, I mean, maybe this is sounds a bit like psychoanalysis or something, but uh, I mean, uh, my interpretation is is that in a way, the um, the kind of core paradigm that existed in the '90s, you know, with the damage maintenance paradigm, the Ross theory, the you know, the disposable soma, the allocation theory, and all of these sort of things. It's sort of fallen apart. And in a way, the field is more kind of fragmented than ever. Um, and it's very difficult for a field as a community of people to function without having a core paradigm. So in a way, um, the, the, the hallmarks kind of functions like a paradigm, but uh, it actually isn't an explanatory paradigm. In, in the proper sense, it's not like the periodic table or something. And it's certainly not like the hallmarks of cancer, which it's based on. Hallmarks of cancer is a fantastic paradigm. It's, it's, it's an enormously powerful, you know, explanatory power that, and, and also uh, ability to guide research. So my sort of looking at the hallmarks thing itself, especially towards the end, there's a kind of a flow chart that sort of shows the relationship between different hallmarks. Um, is that the 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 the, um, the flowchart at the end was still very very much flavoured with damage maintenance paradigm? It was almost like it didn't want to say that the damage maintenance paradigm was still the paradigm, and yet it was it was like there as almost in an almost ghostly form, you know. So it was almost as if it was damage maintenance paradigm by the back door. It was sort of smuggled in in a funny way. And one of my um, one of the things that's um, that's very different about the programmatic theory. It, and this goes back not only through from Misha uh, Blagoskloni, but also Vladimir Dillman. Um, they emphasize very strongly that 
um, that actually, um, you know, aging is a process of accumulation. It, it is a is a um, is a process of multiple diseases, and that if you study aging, you you're studying disease. And actually, one of the this is a critique from, for example, from from Misha and and from Dillman, that um, the damage sort of theory kind of tends to focus uh, attention on events within the cell. So you're looking at uh, molecular events. You're looking at it's like an it's a molecular explanation damage uh, and so on mitochondrial biology and this sort of thing that's where you're looking and, and that's where you find an explanation for aging and then from that you you have the cells become damaged or deranged or whatever and then that sort of leads up somehow to to, to different diseases but the diseases themselves are kind of not very interesting you know they're very complicated whereas the the um the programmatic theory really sees the uh, the diseases themselves as developmental events that's really where the the in the, the meaningful pathogenetic uh, you know processes are happening mm -hmm. and i think the uh, one of the one of the problems with the damage maintenance paradigm has been because it focuses on the subcellular it actually tends to not talk much about diseases of aging and uh, it's striking how that the hallmarks is very consistent with that and the programmatic theory i mean if you look at the for example, the, the review that you mentioned about hyperfunction theory, it's much, much more oriented to looking at disease. And it also uh, is critical of sometimes uh, a distinction which is even made between aging and disease, which is an old medical, I think partly from an old medical tradition of, of sort of um, sort of calling some of the age deteriorative age changes normal, which I think is in a way a, a pragmatic uh, a practice for doctors dealing with elderly patients to, just to not <laughs> make them feel you sort of say well you're you know you, your eyesight's going having problems peeing and you you know you've got some pains in your joints and weakness and so on but you know for your age you're doing really well you actually you're probably better than normal you know that's just normal aging it's nothing to worry about so this is a you know this is um this is good practice you know but in it from a biological point of view the idea of sort of normal senescence like no, sort of normal biological processes of senescence uh, in, in the sense that they're not pathological but let's say non-pathological senescence um is uh, a nonsense really um so i think that in a way yeah that that's sort of a, a part of the of the critique of the hallmarks is is that it, it, it's part of the uh the, the 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 sort of tendency to neglect to not focus on diseases of aging but focus on sort of some uh, some some central mechanisms, particularly subcellular mechanisms. This is part of the theory that actually both both Blagasconi and de Magalhaes both made this point that um, that a lot of the the problems that that, that emerge during aging are happening at, at the level of not not of cellular homeostasis, not of cellular health, if you like, but tissue homeostasis and organ homeostasis and 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 uh, uh, sort of higher physiological homeostasis. So it, it, a lot of the cells in later life, the cells are fine, mm -hmm. or tissue homeostasis particularly that, that goes awry be, uh, for, because of programmatic uh, problems. Interesting. Wow, fascinating. I, I'll actually be having um, Joao Pedro on the podcast as well. So okay, look forward good. to yes. talking more yeah. about it. That will be, you know, he's, he's, he's a very, very, some people, they just keep having original creative insight. Um, 
I mean, I think part of it is because he reads very widely, and that that goes also for for Misha Blagoskoni. They read very widely. Uh, Misha mm -hmm. also very much reads a lot of the medical literature, which I think um, uh, biogentologists tend not to look at so much. Right, and that that also explains right, like maybe why he's thinking about why aren't we really thinking about the disease of aging yeah. uh, as part of the aging process, yeah. as but opposed to very distinct. As a clinician, as as of course was. Mm -hmm. Vladimir yeah, fantastic. If we have maybe two more minutes, um, the last thing I wanted to discuss was you briefly mentioned this: the two causes of death in C. elegans, and ah. it turns out it's the swollen pharynx or the atrophied pharynx, um, which largely is caused by just bacterial infection. Um, I found it. I think in your paper you mentioned that. Well, you know, we could. Uh, give them some sort of antibiotic and um, remove this infection and maybe be able to better study the intrinsic mechanisms of aging. But you actually end up saying, no, this is really telling because the damage that's happening because of the swollen pharynx later, um, later integrates with the aging damage and, and sort of explains better the causes of aging. Um, I think if you could explain that, because... My my thinking was that why well, why don't we give them this antibiotic? I mean, humans take all these vaccines and yeah. antibiotics, and so yeah. maybe that's a better model. It's a great question. It's a very tricky one. That's a very tricky and complex um, topic. So, for example, um, one of the uh, uh, um, preoccupations of people working on mouse aging is that um, uh, is that in some cases, in some cases, if if you have a if you're looking at intervention to see if it extends lifespan. And then the control lifespan of the mice is very short. You say, ah, well, the mice aren't dying of aging. They're dying of something else. So you're not necessarily affecting the aging process. So for a long time, this was sort of axiomatic uh, in uh, model organism biogerontology that you're always trying to remove the extrinsic causes of, mm -hmm. of, uh, of uh, the things that extrinsic factors that shorten lifespan. And, you know, there's some sense to that. But, and in fact, I mean, for example, you mentioned Matt Kaberlein. I mean, he, I don't know if he still does, but he used to do all of his work on E. coli that, that was uh, essentially, was irradiated with, with ultraviolet bacteria so that it wouldn't infect the, the worms to, to essentially take that out. Um, but um, in fact, the, um, uh, right, in the paper, this was a point of argument. Does this mean that, that um, in fact, looking at what we're looking at with the, the, the two forms of death, big P and small P and so on, that we're just looking at infection. We're not looking at aging at all. And what we're looking at is uninformative with respect to aging. And I would argue not. And I, I can make, a, I think, a strong case for that, particularly because the um, the multifactorial model that I just described to you, the, the uh, um, you know, the sort of Dillman plus multifactorial model, actually, I was able to to sort of realize to, to understand it because it resembled an earlier model that we developed with Yuan Zhao and I and, and Anne Gilead, who, who also worked on that project, <clears throat> you know, which is a model for how aging is working. Um, which is that, so what, uh, this is a bit complicated, but so what, what we think happens with these big P deaths, so big P death, you get this swollen pharynx full of bacteria and the worms die kind of prematurely, they die earlier. Um, so what actually happens is very interesting. The young worms, they feed at a very, very high rate using this structure, the pharynx. Uh, 
And what happens is that the, the cuticle of the pharynx experiences mechanical senescence. Yeah, you get wear and tear, mechanical wear and tear on the, on the pharyngeal cuticle. And what happens then is that bacteria invade the pharynx. Mm -hmm. But then you don't get an infection. What happens is that the, the damage, the, the pumping rate of the pharynx goes down and the, and the wounds in the pharynx heal up. And you can see scar tissue in the pharynx using electromicroscopy. And what you get, and you, you can see this by marking the bacteria with, with a fluorescent uh, reporter, you can see these little puncta inside the pharynx. And if you look under the electron microscope, you can see that they're actually membrane bound. So they're a little bit like, um, a little bit like, like granulomas in tuberculosis. The bacteria is contained. And so then for about a week or so, nothing happens in the pharynx. The bacteria are contained in these granulomas. And then when the major senescence process kicks in, they come out like the, Trojan, the, 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 the Trojans and the Trojan horse. They come out, they infect the pharynx, and they destroy the pharynx. Mm -hmm. So this provides a, um, a way of, of thinking about this. This is the Dillman's, this is the two-factor model. The disruption is the, in, particularly the infection of the bacteria. But in the young worm, the infection is contained, right? But in the old worm, then it comes out. And you see this pattern where, where disruption is contained in the, in the youthful organism. And then when senescence appears, it essentially, uh, it is unmasked or to use the medical term, it, 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 under, it shows recrudescence. So for example, in old people, um, what, um, uh, um, children often get chickenpox, um, and the immune system clears the chickenpox. But you actually often have some latent uh, chickenpox virus, and in later life, as the immune system changes, the chickenpox virus can re-emerge in the form of shingles, which is a far more painful and unpleasant condition. And that's an example of of uh, where you where you have a disruption, which is contained, and then then it emerges in later life. And actually, this pattern where disruptions are contained and then emerge in later life, you see again and again in aging-related diseases. So I think in a way that that general rule that we worked out to explain, it's in, this, it's in the supplement of that big piece, small p paper, is actually a tiny version of, uh, of, of Dillman's uh, uh, multifactorial model. So I think it goes to show that in a way to understand uh, uh, how aging-related diseases emerge, how they develop as multifactorial uh, um, diseases. Uh, it's helpful. It, it doesn't hurt to have disruptions uh, there that might that might, might might reduce lifespan. So if it, if we used UV radiated bacteria, we, we wouldn't have learned that. It's a beautiful question. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's exactly what I was getting at. That some of the disruption you're saying, even in humans, it might happen in when you're younger, but because we're youthful, it's contained. Yeah, yeah. But then as we get older, say the programmatic theory also kicks in, Absolutely. Um, including, yeah, the damage. That's, that's actually what led me looking at osteoarthritis, because in osteoarthritis, you get, you get uh, injuries to joints when you're younger. You get a football injury to your knee, and then it's fine. Hmm. And then you get into your mid-60s, and suddenly that knee develops osteoarthritis. It's like, uh, I, I, I put it, it's like a... Um, a loaded gun with a trigger it's like a gun with a trigger so it's rather like you have the gun and it's not loaded you pull the trigger which is the, the, the injury to the knee nothing happens when you get to 60 then the gun is loaded 
and then you pull the trigger and then you get your disease you get the osteoarthritis yeah and that's so common of human experience i think yeah. even say marathon runners they they say that they'd be able to run miles when they're younger and their knee is fine but then suddenly it starts hurting when yeah. they're much older and it's it's impossible for them to run anymore it's a recurrent pattern with lots of aging related diseases fascinating all right um i think we've covered a lot um and taken up a lot of your time but is there anything else that maybe we haven't discussed you wanted to talk about not, not really i mean that's we talked covered a lot of ground uh, good to talk to you and, and it's really nice that you know it's nice because this stuff is if it's available on youtube it helps you know helps people to have a chance to know what's going on in the field hi again everyone i hope you enjoyed the episode and learned from it if so please show some support by subscribing to my youtube channel live longer world liking the video sharing the podcast and leaving a review on apple podcasts to be notified of upcoming podcast releases sign up on my website at livelongerworld.com follow me on twitter at livelongerworld and instagram at longevityfuture thanks for listening stay in good health and i'll catch you soon